Tonight, we are going to be tackling the first part of the rest of our 12-1 series. Last week, if you were here, I did something really, really um, stupid brave. And that was tackle 11 chapters of Scripture all at once. We got through it. My head hurt when I went home. Um, a lot of other people's heads probably just hurt in general. It was a lot of information we, we crammed through to bring us to the point of discussing two verses. And these verses are pivotal in the book of Romans. And as Paul writes them, it's a transition point of the book. So the basic hope of this series is that we walk away from start to finish with a more practical understanding of what it means to talk about when we we live as sacrifices. That we live in a way that, that honors God, that brings glory to God, because of of what he's done so tonight we're going to jump in i'm just going to read romans 12 verses 1 and 2 and i'm going to pray and we're going to get rolling romans 12 1 and 2 says simply this therefore i urge you brothers in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to god this is your spiritual act of worship Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. God, tonight, I pray as we go into these next four weeks, as we start tonight, that you are here with us. In fact, God, I would continue as just always praying, God, that we know or at least I hope we can know, God, that you are. You are with us. You are here. God, I simply pray that you would make us more aware. God, that tonight you would speak into our hearts. God, you would walk among us in a way that alters our perspective. God, that as we walk out of here tonight, God, we're looking at you differently that our relationships with you have changed for the better. And that would shape the way we do life. So God, be with us. Make us aware. Quicken our hearts and our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, tonight we're just going to start out by looking at the opening line of these two verses. Simply put, Paul says this, Therefore, I urge you... Brothers, in view of God's mercy. We're going to stop right there. Bam. First half of the first verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. There are two things that are going on here that I I want to highlight, that we're going to talk about tonight, that are going to be the, the bulk of our lesson. And that is, first, the idea of this urgency. As Paul writes this chapter, begins this part of the letter, if you recall last week as we came through all 11 chapters leading up to this, we talked about the message that Paul was conveying through the book of Romans. It is a large theological statement to the believers in Rome about all the, basically all that the gospel entails. The condition of man, justification, identification, And now we're working into an area where it hits practicality. Where Paul essentially says, because of this, 
You should live like this. And so in this, he starts off by saying, Therefore I urge you, brothers, this idea of being urged. I want to talk about this word. The word is parakaleo in Greek. Parakaleo. And it's the same word that is used for things like, not just urge, but beg, plead, what I have else, uh, implore, appeal, exhort. It is a cry. It is not just like, hey, um, so I want you to think about something. I just, you know, if you possibly could, maybe if it's not too, you know, not too much trouble, I want you to, you know, think about this. Ponder. I don't know. Maybe. No, Paul says, I urge you, I'm pleading you, I beg you, I'm making an appeal. I am bringing to you this idea with urgency. This is not something that that Paul is just looking at lightly. When Paul makes this transition from the last 11 chapters, that's really annoying. Sorry to the greeting crew, that just sort of... There we go. He makes the transition from the last 11 chapters. He comes into chapter 12, guns blazing. Saying, this is not just about something you need to know for your head. This is not just about something that you should be able to recite and, and exegete and give back to me. I'm not grading papers. I want you to live differently. But I don't just kind of want to suggest that you might live differently. I am urging you, begging you, to consider what this looks like and live differently. I want you to think about the idea of urgency. Like, the idea of what urgency is. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples from my own life. My wife has had four children, right? So we have four kids. And... Each time my wife has gone into labor, there's been a sense of urgency. Okay? When Grayson was born, we weren't yet married. For those of you who don't know the whole story, ask me later. I'll tell you the whole thing. It's not... You let your minds wander for now. I'll tell you later. So... (laughs) I had just moved into her apartment and I lived in the living room. And I slept on the floor on a twin mattress. That's where I lived. Grown man. It would have been better if it was my mom's basement or something. But I was on my fiance's front room floor on a twin mattress. And we're waiting. And we knew it was coming soon because Grayson was due sometime in September. Right? But more towards October. And one night after going to sleep, I wake up to a violent kicking. Violent. Kicking. The mattress is coming up off the floor. I look up. Get up! So I was like, all right, I'm up, I'm up, I'm up, right? And so we go through the whole process. Then we shoot off to the hospital. Grayson's born that night or early that morning, really. When Jack was born, we had our first water-breaking experience. When I was, in, I was out in the front room and my wife was in our home office and she was working on the computer and all of a sudden from the office I hear, Woohoo! Literally, I kid you not. Came running back there. What? I think my water just broke. Urgency. Right? Hospital. Got to get there. 
Baby on the floor, bad news. Urgency. But let me paint it to you another way. When we were pregnant with Jack, I went to a men's retreat with my church. And I went out mountain biking with a bunch of guys on that retreat in the demonstration forest in Santa Cruz. And we're up in the mountains, and I got in a horrible accident. Horrible accident. And so I basically hit a tree. That's, that's the horrible accident I had. I hit a tree, flew like 15 feet through the air, had like road rash everywhere, and sprained both my wrists. It was not that fun. So one of the guys was very gracious. He drove me home that night. I got home late. The next day, we went to the doctor, went to the urgent care. Not the emergency room. I was like, ah, it's not broken, but I'm banged up. So we go to the urgent care. So we're sitting in the urgent care, and the doctor's, you know, working. And they take me over to get x-rays just to make sure nothing's broken. I come back from getting x-rays, and I come into my room where I was waiting, and Christine is laid out on the bed with each EKG monitor pad strapped to her. And the doctor looking over her with this look on her face of urgency. Then Christine suffered from what, what the doctors would later just inform us is pregnancy-induced tachycardia. Her heart rate would spike during pregnancy. And so we had already had one child and the people at... at at the other hospital, I won't name, um, they kind of just brushed it off. And I walk in, and, and Christine's got the EKG going, and the doctor's kind of, she starts calling people. And she calls over to the, ho- the main hospital, which is just across the street, and she tells them, she's sending us over, and she needs a room for us, and they need to be ready to do all these tests. And she lists off these tests, and I'm just like, what in the heck is going on? And I'm starting to freak out. I'm like, I'm starting to just really freak out. And we go over to the hospital, and I finally get in front of another doctor who says, well, here's the concern. Her heart rate keeps spiking. There may be blood clots happening somewhere in her body that are getting loose, getting to the heart, causing these spikes. We're very concerned about that because if they get lodged somewhere else, that could be really bad for her. That could be really bad for the baby. So we have to run this test, this test, this test, this test. And like suddenly... I really realized what urgency was. And it freaked me out. I mean, later we find out, obviously, it's, it's not necessarily a life-threatening condition, tachycardia, just raising the pulse. But in that moment, the urgency of everything going on around me changed my perspective. And I remember sitting later in the waiting room on the phone with my friend Eric, who was a youth pastor that I volunteered for at the time, crying my eyes out because I'm not sure what's going on. I have to make decisions about radioactive dyes and craziness and all this stuff, and I'm just wigged out. But there was this sense of something needs to be done because of the situation that we've just learned of. The information we just got suddenly changed the urgency. So I want you guys to turn to your tables we got questions tonight, since we have tables back, I figure we better have questions, right? But I want you just to discuss really quick a time in your life that you felt a deep sense of urgency. Not panic, necessarily, but urgency, that something needed to be resolved, something needed to be done quickly. 
I would say, judging from the conversation, or at least the noise level in the room, either um, people really enjoyed watching the Lakers go down in flames on Sunday, or or um, everyone in the room can identify with what it is to have a sense of urgency. Whatever it may be motivated by, whatever it might look like for you, I think each one of us in the room can identify with the idea of having that sense of urgency in our lives, in our minds, even if momentarily. It's there. We've seen it. We've dealt with it. But the question goes further, because now we have to realize, in this case, when Paul reaches out and gives them this urging, this pleading, this begging, what is that attached to? What is it coming from? What is causing Paul to be stirred in such a way that he makes this kind of request to the people reading the letter in Rome. And when he does, what is his motivation? What? It's a very simple statement. At, at the end of last year, we gathered the leaders together and we started to talk about what, what worship is as we prepared for this year. And we, we got everybody in a room and we, we talked through... Um, a number of things. And a lot of the leaders, we had tables that had large sheets of, uh, of butcher paper on them. They were out and we came up with a bunch of things on those pieces of paper. But then one of the first things we came up with was a list of descriptors. Worship is. We just wrote those down. And they're still in my office uh, on the cork board, hanging on my whiteboard. But one of the things that stuck out out of that whole night that has stuck with me through this year, is that worship is a response to the revelation of God. Worship is a response to the revelation of God. And this becomes super clear in this verse. Because Paul's urgency is tied directly to the following idea in view of God's mercy. This urgency is in response to the revelation of God. That is what Paul is laying out. He's saying to the people that have received this letter, as you remember, we go back to last week, we talk about the people in Rome, in the church, Gentiles and Jewish believers alike, populating this church. And so you have a mixed bag of people that are getting this information. But from both sides, Paul is saying, listen, the game has been changed. Our relationship with God has been shifted for the better. Because you, if you're a Gentile, you had no chance of being inside of God's family until now. You had no chance. You could not be one of God's chosen because you were not a Hebrew. And you, if you're Hebrew, you've been laboring under the false religiosity of your religious leadership, thinking that that's the way to attain God's grace and mercy. And God has shifted that so that equal access has been given through His grace to His throne. The veil has been torn. The Holy of Holies has been opened up. That is what Paul reveals through the first 11 chapters of Romans. 
And then he turns the corner and says, Therefore, I urge you, beg you, plead you, in view of God's mercy, of which I've just written you a whole heck of a long letter about, bringing us right to this point in view of all of these things, Paul is making this transition. We talked about it a little bit earlier. He's moving from just giving information to because of this information, this is what you are and should live like. This then is how you should live. Paul has made a declaration about the core facets of this new belief, this new this new way, as it was called at that point, the new church in Jesus Christ, and what it looked like. And it really was mind-blowing for both sides. The gospel was radical in the religious world of the time. And then what Paul says, and what Paul says in all of his letters, because Paul is consistent in this theology, that this information is not simply information to possess. This information is information that's been given to you to change you. To radically alter the life that you currently live into something new and different and amazing at the hands of God. That is what Paul is talking about when he makes this turn, turns this corner. He is expecting okay, maybe not expecting, hoping in a deeply passionate way that this information will not simply fall into the hands of these people and then go, oh, okay. That it will create change because of what's been put on display for them in the last 11 chapters of this letter, which of course wasn't 11 chapters at that point, it was just a long letter. So, here's what I'm hoping. You start to understand that when the Bible's written, when, when it comes to you, the information given to you, Paul's expectation, deep, passionate hope, has not vanished. With every word that Paul conveys, that hope remains. So the next question for you guys to wrestle with, in a literal sense, is what kind of information normally brings about change in your life? I and mean, what, what kind of information brings about the most change in your life? When someone brings information to you, right, what's, what's the kind of information that brings about change in your life? Right, I mean, we just talked about urgency. Something brought about the urgency. For me, it was, right, being kicked while I was sleeping. Urgency. But there are also bits of information that bring about change. What kind of information is that for you? What is the stuff you learn in your life? What kind of information comes to you that brings about most change? Maybe another like, six minutes to, to wrap that up. What's the information that comes to you that brings the most change? So, some of you, if not all of you, 
have had change in your life, just as you've had urgency. Uh, each of us have experienced some form of, of change, um, whether direct physical change or change in thought, change in um, beliefs. Just real quick, just by, by show of hands, who grew up through most of their life at home at this point, not being a Christian, not in a Christian home? Okay. Okay, so each person with their hand up experienced change due to information. See, as Paul brings this transition to us, what Paul is essentially asking or leading us to is a place in which we live out worship as an act of response. That we live in view of God's mercy. Because of what God has done. That things change because of what has been done. Um, you may have noticed during the break, I ran over and grabbed Mike LaFarge. Mike is on our sermon prep team. Um, and something just struck me in the middle of the, uh, you guys talking, it just kind of dawned on me. Um, and it, it just, the words just kind of came to me and I was like, okay, I, I just don't want to say that because I want to know something about it before I just, about. so luckily Mike has a smartphone and we, we Googled it. And it's like sermon research during the sermon. I, I bet you none of you have ever seen that before. Okay. The words were, I couldn't quite get it out, but it literally is this. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. It's uh, Isaac Newton's third law of physics, as quoted to me by Michael Lafarge, right? Did I get that right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we got that... Isaac Newton's third law of physics, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. In other words, when something is done to something else, something happens. Right? If I walk over and knocked over Cameron's <laughs> cup of coffee, he'd probably cry. See? In the... In the physics realm, it simply means to move something causes it to go. In other words, what, what we talked about was, in other words, a car can't move forward unless the wheels are touching the ground, creating the friction. The motion of the wheels causes the, the car to go. It's not too dissimilar. This isn't an issue of physics. But what Paul is essentially offering to us is that because of God's action, an equal reaction is required. Because of what God has done, you should do something. You should live differently than you have been. You should understand some things 
about who you were and who you've been made to be in Christ. And so, what Paul is essentially doing is challenging the status quo of religious motivations. People that operated out of rules-based theology that said, I will please God by obeying a list of rules and commands, and then God might like me. He's, he's appealing to people who stood at the outside of what God had to offer without hope of ever getting inside. And essentially the question becomes, what would it look like if we lived for God because of His love instead of or else? changes everything what God has done changes us and our relationship to him it changes or should change how we see him you see I harp on this a lot because I think we live in this trap of this sort of weird obligatory living just in case God might smush me. The sort of, if I, if I don't live right, then I'm going to be missing something, but I don't know really why to live right. And Paul is here saying, because of God's mercy, that's why you want to live right. Because God has seen fit to look at you and say, I love you enough to do the work to restore our relationship without you ever doing anything. And because of that, I don't want you to go and live differently. I don't want you to work to restore a relationship that's already been restored. I want you to live differently because the relationship's already been restored. I want you to be an outpouring of my mercy to you and into the world. So very practically, I broke it down into a couple of things of, of what really it is and what it isn't. It's some simple, really basic life kind of stuff. What it is, is hope that is due to your faith in God. In other words, God fights the battles for you. It brings about a joy. It brings about a sense of God is bigger than my struggles and my problems and life will not defeat me. But what it's not is being lazy and trying to hyper-spiritualize your lack of action. What it is is victory over sin and temptation because there's more to life than what is in front of me. In other words, when we understand that God has forgiven us, when we understand that there's been mercy for us, our flesh reaction is to see how far we can push that. But inside our hearts and inside our minds, we know 
that that is not what God intended it for. This morning at our staff prayer meeting, we talked about this concept. What makes it different for a believer and a non-believer when they're staring at sin? This is all that I could come up with. The believer knows there's more than what's sitting in front of him. Whatever might be sitting in front of him, whatever temptation, whatever issue, whatever struggle that is sitting in front of him, the believer knows that in Christ there is more than this. There is more than what this can offer me in Christ. But what it isn't, it is not not making good choices to avoid temptation and areas of known struggle. It's it's not being dumb. In other words, if you know what your struggles are, you know where your areas of temptation and sin are, you you don't run to them just to see if God will keep you from them. You have an obligation to step out of that, to walk away from it, not to abuse it. It is being in a joyful relationship with God and sharing that with others. It isn't being a hypocritical, self-righteous, preachy jerk. In other words, you have an obligation in response to God's love to live a faith that is out loud. Because God has done more for you than anyone on this earth or any ten people on this earth combined. And we're really good at telling other people about other people that do good things for us. But man, we can be really shy when it comes to sharing the fact that God has done everything for us. I think what it boils down to, if you ask me, is that we aren't living in response to God's love. We are still somewhere in our minds living in hopes to gain or earn God's love. And it kills us. And I'll be very honest, it kills the gospel. So for us, what can we do about it? What can you and I do in our lives that makes a difference? We change our perspective in view of God's mercy. Paul urges us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, that this would be our spiritual act of worship. You guys, we have been given so much. And it applies so practically into our lives. We wander in fear. We sit in, 
in doubt. And it keeps us from so much. When what we need to do is examine what God has done and what God has opened up and let that be the cause for our living. We pray for you guys. God, tonight we want to thank you. in view of your mercy. God, would you help us? Would you walk with us? Would you guide us to a place in our hearts, in life, that we are living lives in response to the revelation of your mercy and your grace and to the gospel? God, that we would know without a shadow of doubt God, that where we are right now, you love us. Where we have been and where we are going, God, you love us. God, and to prove that love, you opened a door to walk with you in right relationship that only you could open. So God, would you just keep that at the forefront of our mind? That we would live in response to that. That we would stop running around frantically, running from you, God, trying to earn your love in ways that you never asked us to. How would you whisper into our hearts? How would you open our, our hearts to hear? How that we would simply come near to you and abide with you. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the mercy you pour out. God, that you live with us each day. In Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Love these final moments because sometimes I feel like I get to rescue my sermon. Um, <laughs> I guess if I could very succinctly say everything I had to say tonight, it would be simply this, whoa. We should live like our vertical relationship has been changed. We should live like our vertical relationship has been changed. The relationship we have with God has been changed. We should live like that. Not in an effort to to change it. It's been changed. And we should live like that. So grab that thought and walk with it this week.